When I first went to India, and this was back in the late 60s, looking for a meditation teacher and a practice, I ended up in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I met my first teacher there. His name was Anagarika Munindra. And at the first meeting, he said something which completely hooked me in the practice. It was so simple. He said, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. That was all. There was no belief system, there were no rituals, there was no dogma. And it just seemed like the ultimate in common sense. If we want to understand our minds, how else can we do it except by sitting down and observing? So that was the beginning of a long journey. I've come to understand that the meditative process is this investigation of who we are. It's the investigation from the inside. It's the investigation of our bodies, the investigation of our thoughts, of emotions. And at the most subtle levels, it's the investigation into the nature of consciousness itself. What is awareness? What is consciousness? And we discover this not by thinking about it, but by the direct experience of it. We can understand meditation as a training in the discipline of paying close and careful and sustained attention. Close, careful, sustained attention to our own inner processes. And through doing this, we come to understand in a very intimate and direct way what forces in our own minds and in the world create suffering. And what forces in our minds and in the world are the conditions for peace, for happiness. And at this level of inquiry, it's no longer theoretical because we're seeing it very directly in our own experience. This meditation practice in the Pali language, which is the colloquial language spoken in northern India in the time of the Buddha, and it's closely related to Sanskrit. The name of this kind of meditation in the Pali language, it's called Vipassana. And Vipassana literally means seeing clearly. So that's what we're practicing. We're practicing seeing clearly meditation. It's often translated into English as insight meditation. So after the first day of practice, you may well be wondering, well, what are the insights? you have already had the first and perhaps most important one. Guaranteed. Because the first insight of insight meditation is the understanding of how often the mind wanders. Is there anybody who has not had that insight yet? It's impossible not to have it. 
when we sit down and pay attention. Thoughts, images, plans, projects, fantasies, memories. You know, all of these thoughts and images come into the mind and carry us away. It's as if we hop on these trains of association. We don't know that we've hopped on and we have no idea where the train is going. And sometime down the road, we wake up, we become aware, and often find ourselves in a very different mental environment from having taken that journey. Another uh, image of how our minds are working for the most part would be like going to a movie theater where they change the film every two and a half minutes. Would you, t- would you pay ten bucks? <laughs> Probably not. And yet this is what our mind is doing. So the first step in the practice, the first step in this training, is learning how to calm the mind and collect the attention. And we do that in a very simple way by giving the mind a primary object of attention, like the breath, or like the step, the movement of the walking. And we simply practice and train the mind to stay steady on it. Now this training has two important components that are the basis or the foundation for developing a sustained concentration. In the Buddhist psychology, which is quite a sophisticated analysis of consciousness and all the different mental factors and mental qualities that are associated with it, These two factors, the first of which is called aiming, or right aim, and it's that quality of mind that directs the mind to the object. So what does this mean? In terms of our practice, what does right aim, or aiming the mind, mean? If you begin a sitting, or a walking, and you begin simply with the hope of having the mind be with the breath or on the step, or even more than hope, even if you have an initial intention to stay with the breath. That's usually sustained for about four seconds, which you have probably noticed. Even though it's a very simple exercise, this is not complicated. You know, we're not trying to visualize some complex mandala of something. It's just the breath, or it's just the step. So it's not complicated, but it's not easy to do, because our minds have not been well trained in this regard. So now I'm going to go out on a very big limb, especially with this crowd. To me, this is the equivalent, the meditative equivalent of the second law of thermodynamics, which, as probably many of you know, has to do with entropy. 
that systems tend to disorder. Now, in my very layman's understanding of this, I'll probably get about 50 notes uh, correcting it. One explanation that I read about entropy and the reason for it is that there are many more possibilities for disorder than order. And because there are many more possibilities for disorder, things tend to disorder. The example that I read in this one particular book said if you take an unbound volume, you know, it's some novel or some book, and you toss it up in the air, it's much more likely that the pages will fall in disorder than in order. Because there are many more possibilities for it. Likewise, there are so many more possibilities for where the mind can be than the breath or the step. And so this move towards entropy in terms of our attention, leaving the mind alone, it will tend to disorder because the possibilities are so many. What this means is that we need a certain energy, we need a certain intentionality to actually concentrate the mind. It's not enough to come in and simply hope for it to happen or wish that it happens. We need this intention to aim the mind towards the object. Now just like hand-eye coordination needs practice, so too does mind-object coordination. We need to practice, it's like using the dart of mindfulness to hit the bullseye of the object, the bullseye of the breath, or the bullseye of the step. As we consciously cultivate this sense of right aim, and it's an actual movement of the mind, it's a move of the mind with each breath, we are turning the mind to the beginning of the breath, to the beginning of the step. That is an indispensable component or building block of concentration. And when we do it, even with a few breaths, we begin to understand how the mind can actually be trained. It says, yes, we can do this. And we see that and understand it because there is an immediate result. When we aim the mind with each breath, we see that it does land on it the training is actually happening. It's something we can do. So that's the first component of concentration. The second, once we've aimed, once we've made the connection with the object, whatever it is, but here particularly the breath or or movement in walking, once we've aimed the mind and connected, the second component is that intention to sustain the attention for the duration of that breath. 
So the practice is one of connecting the object and sustaining the attention. Now Sharon spoke last night of going to her first meditation course and hearing these instructions and thinking, well, you know, I know there's some esoteric teaching that if I only waited long enough, you know, I'll finally get, and she, she never received them. Well, I'm going to give them tonight. <laughs> so this is the esoteric teaching about this that Sharon and maybe some of my other colleagues have been waiting for all of these years. This is 35 years later. It's not about being with one breath or one step. It's about being with half a breath. Because one breath is too long. Our mind actually does not have the capacity very much to be with a whole breath. And by whole breath I mean an in and an out. (laughs) Much too long. And I'm sure you've noticed today Within one in and out, how many mental journeys can you take? A lot. If you have your intention to aim and re-aim with each half breath, you aim, you connect with the beginning of the in-breath, a half breath, and sustain for just that half breath, You aim again at the beginning of the out-breath of the falling and sustain for just that half-breath. A half-breath we can do. Half-breath, half-breath, half-breath. And what's so amazing is that that's all we need to do. If you aim and sustain for half-breath at a time, the mind will become very concentrated. So there you go, Sharon. (laughs) As we do this, as we practice in this way, with aiming and sustaining the attention for a half breath at a time, what happens is that slowly the mind begins to settle down. Now the thoughts are still there, but they're not quite so compelling. You know, they don't... Uh, call us uh, so strongly. We begin to experience quite deeply just a sense of relief, a certain sense of rest, a certain sense of ease. And this effort to aim and sustain, which in the beginning requires this strong determination, that I'm going to do this, I'm going to train in this way, at a certain point, those two factors themselves start happening by themselves, start happening effortlessly. So from this place of greater ease, of calm, of collectedness, we begin to feel our bodies in a new and more immediate way. We might start feeling places of tightness, of tension, of pressure, of vibration, of heat, 
of all kinds of sensations, both gross and subtle, in the body, <coughs> that we didn't even know were there. Attention to bodily sensations, beginning to open to them in our field of awareness, opens a doorway to a very important shift in meditative understanding. And that is we begin to discover through our attention to these sensations that we begin to feel, the difference between our concepts about experience and the direct experience itself. And this is a major shift in the meditative journey. There is a big difference between thinking my back hurts and the direct experience of vibration, of pressure, of stabbing, of burning, whatever the sensation is. My back hurts is the overlay of a concept. When we're in the direct experience of the sensations, there's an immediate direct experience of what is actually going on. Why is this important? Why is this shift from concepts about experience to the experience itself so important? It's important because our concepts don't change. The words we use to describe the experience, I have a back today, I have a back tomorrow, I had a back yesterday, the word back is not changing. Our experience of what we're calling back, the actual direct experience of all those sensations are changing all the time. And so it's only when we drop from the level of concept into the direct awareness of what is actually happening in our experience, that's when we begin to see the very momentary, vibrant, changing nature of phenomena. So this is a very important move. In our growing awareness of the body as changing and increasingly microscopic level sensation, our attention, our perception can get very, very refined. As we make this move from the concept of the body to feeling the changing momentary nature of all these sensations, we begin to also understand in a clearer way the many strategies that we've evolved during our lifetimes for dealing with pain and discomfort. Because we feel unpleasant things, my back hurts. How do we deal with my back hurts? And how have we learned to deal with it? Well, we each have our own strategies. Maybe we have conditioned ourselves um, with fear. You know, pain comes in a certain way and we can feel a fear of it. You know, or denial. You know, I'm not, I'm not tense. I'm not feeling tension. And we're just 
are denying what's there. Or it might be self-pity. And you might be sitting here and your knees hurt or your back is hurting and there's these different sensations and the thought, oh, everybody else is in blissful concentration and it's just me who's struggling. You know, we get in this kind of vortex of self-pity. Or it might be anger, it might be avoidance. I mean, our culture is masterful at helping us to avoid discomfort. I had a striking experience with this and an understanding of what strategies work and what don't work with respect to opening to what's happening in our bodies. The time I was in India, I was practicing, as many of you probably know, in the summer months, it gets really hot on the plains. You know, 120, or really hot. And so when we could, we would go up to the mountains. There's one summer, I was going with friends uh, up to Kashmir. And at that time, it was still quite a safe place to be. And it involved one of these incredibly long Indian bus rides. I don't know, it was 15 hours, 20 hours. And for those of you who've been in India or in Asia, you know, the buses, it was pretty packed and crowded and old and, and I'm pretty tall. And I ended up in a kind of middle seat over the crankcase, you know, so all the fumes of the, the motor and the engine were coming up, and I thought to myself, 17 hours of this. <laughs> you know, it was just a horrendous thought. So I just said to myself, Joseph, just stay with your breath. Right? Just keep everything else out. Just be with your breath. So that was my strategy, you know, for, for dealing with this. Well, I get on this bus and in, out, in, out, in, out, you know, for half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, I was really determined. But at a certain point, I just got exhausted. You know, I was trying so hard to just focus on the breath and keep everything out, I realized this is not going to work. And right at that moment, I had a, it was like a little epiphany, uh, you know, just this sudden understanding And I realized my whole strategy was wrong. Instead of keeping everything out, what I really needed to do was let everything in. And so then I was sitting, and I just opened up to the discomfort, to the painful feelings in the body, to the bad smells, to all the vibration and the movement. And I just let everything come in and wash through things got a lot easier. And it was a great meditative lesson. And this, this is the lesson of meditation, that we need to let things in rather than keep them out. As we learn how to open in a relaxed way, to uncomfortable sensations in the body, and to be right on the sensation level, you know, whether it's the burning or the pressure or the tightness or the whatever it may be, what happens is that many of the accumulated tensions that are being held in the body begin to unwind, 
begin to release. It's as if we're creating the space just through awareness, through simple attentiveness. We're creating the space for the tensions that we're carrying, both physically and emotionally, for them to begin to unwind. Again, I had a striking experience of this, and this is just one of you know, many that, that different people have had. But years ago, I was on retreat here. I was doing a long retreat, and I was doing walking meditation downstairs in the, in the lower walking room. And I was walking back and forth mindfully, and all of a sudden, I had this intense pain in my shin bone. It was so intense and so sharp, it felt like the bone was extruding from the skin. You know, that's what it felt like. I actually had to look down. It was, it was such an intense moment of sharp pain. And right in that moment, a certain image came into my mind. And it was an image of myself when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And I was out in the country flying a kite running across a field, you know, looking up at the kite and running smack into a cement bench right at that place. And you can imagine, I mean, at the time it was really painful. But this was an incident I had completely forgotten about. This was like from 40 years before or whatever. But it was stored in the body in some way. The body was carrying it. And just in the process of meditation, in the process of opening to what I was feeling in the body, at a certain point, that's what was being released. And that's the process. So in this one respect, we can understand the meditative process as a healing one. We're actually allowing the mind and body to unwind, to let go. Sometimes people feel impatient or discouraged in their practice, and this can easily happen the first day or two of a retreat, which you know, can be the most difficult. You know, we do feel discomfort in the body and different pains. Sometimes feel impatient, people feel impatient or discouraged when they have the striking realization that meditation is not all bliss, you know, and it actually does mean opening at times, to painful feelings, painful sensations. But we do a funny thing with that. Even when we know better, and this is true for experienced meditators as well as new ones, we are so conditioned to equate pleasant experience with good meditation and unpleasant experience with bad meditation. You know, if you came in and you had a really pleasant sitting then somebody asked you how your sitting was, oh, great. Yeah, it felt good. If you had a painful sitting, a lot of pain, you know, in the back, in the knee, wherever, and somebody asked you how, oh, terrible sitting. The value of the meditation has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. 
It has to do with how aware we are, how mindful we are. And that actually becoming aware of the different levels of discomfort in the body is very often a sign of deepening practice because what it means is that we are no longer distracting ourselves. We're getting collected enough, we're getting concentrated enough to see what is really going on. There was a very uh, great Burmese master. He was considered really one of the great enlightened beings of Burma. His name was Saida Shui Umin. He said, you have to accept and work with both pleasant and unpleasant experience. You only want pleasant. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of seeing what is true? You know, and it just highlights our practice is to open to what is true. And that means opening to the full range of our experience. Now, as we do this, and as you practice doing it, it leads to an interesting meditative experience. And that is the experience of having a pleasant mental feeling even as we're experiencing physical pain. But we can be experiencing physical pain and be in a pleasant mental feeling. And this happens when the mind is calm, the mind is peaceful, the mind is steady, the mind is concentrated. Maybe concentrated <coughs> on an unpleasant sensation, but the quality of the mind is steady, peaceful, even happy. And of course, this is great training for dying because most likely, not most likely when we're dying, it will involve some unpleasantness in the body. The body's shutting down. I want to read something. This is from one of my great heroes, uh, Henry David Thoreau, who, as you may know, died uh, quite young. He was in his 40s of TB. He was a very extraordinary being. So this is, this is uh, from a, biogra- a biography, and this was written by a friend of his. He said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I have heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. This is when he was dying. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. That's an amazing understanding. There's much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. Why? Because the nature of the mind was simply aware of whatever the condition of the body was. And the peace, the ease, has to do with the nature of our minds and how it is relating to what we're experiencing. So this tremendous power here, you know, not only as you're sitting here 
in meditation, but for how we live and for how we die. So first step is calming the mind, collecting the attention, kind of reining in this monkey mind. And then as the mind gets a bit steadier, less distracted, we begin to feel our bodies more clearly, more intimately. So these two steps in meditation are quite tangible. It's working with the breath, with walking, feeling the body in a very immediate way. From this grounding in the awareness of the breath and the awareness of the body, we're then able to better open and experience the inner workings of the mind, the inner experience of the mind. And at first, in doing this, we see more and more clearly the many conditioned uh, habit patterns and tendencies of thought and emotion. Now, as we're grounded in the awareness of the breath and the body and our mind, our attention is a bit more stable, then we can see more clearly just the patterns of our likes and our dislikes, you know, our judgments, our desires, our wants, our aversions. All of these workings, patterns of the mind become very clear to us. We begin to see that there is an inner commentary about almost everything. Have you had the experience of standing online at a supermarket and just having these quick little judgmental thoughts about people online? You don't even know. You know we've never seen them. But it doesn't stop the mind from having some kind of comment or other. Oh, why are they buying that? So whatever. We begin to see the pattern of self-judgments. And this is a common tendency where we judge ourselves. Either in relation to some ideal we have or in relation to other people. And sometimes these self-judgments are completely ridiculous. And yet we can get caught by them. Earlier this year, I was on retreat uh, at the Forest Refuge. And my yogi job <coughs> was a veggie chopper. Now, I'm not from the school of great cooks. In fact, I'm hardly from the school of cooks at all. <laughs> but I, I, liked, I liked my yogi job. So I'm in the kitchen, and one uh, morning, uh, they brought out this big pile of eggplants, and we were just supposed to slice the eggplants. So I'm there, happily slicing away, and they were going to make some kind of you know, eggplant parmesan or something. And we're laying the slice of eggplant in the pans. And I see that my slices are not at all even. <laughs> it's like some were thick and some were thin. And but I was just hoping that when it got all covered up, you know, nobody would notice. <clears throat> so that's okay. I didn't think too much about it, but I did notice that my slices weren't that great. So at lunchtime, I'm waiting for the eggplant parmesan to come out, and they didn't serve it. 
you know, or something else. So I thought, oh, maybe they're saving for the next day. So I wait for lunch the next day. They didn't serve it. So then my mind went on this little trip. <laughs> they didn't like my eggplant slices. <laughs> they had to throw it all out. They, and it just went on and on and on. About it. <laughs> so I was castigating myself about not taking enough care with how I did it. And finally, I just had to go ask the cooks, what happened to all those eggplants? <laughs> And they had prepared something and just had frozen it for some time when they weren't able to have the time to prepare, you know, spend a lot of time for preparation. It had nothing to do, obviously, with how I sliced the eggplant, but it didn't stop the mind from just creating this whole little drama. So this is one of the more ridiculous self-judgments that can happen. But in a way, they're all ridiculous. It's just a pattern. It's just a habit of mind. very interesting to observe and in the silence of a retreat this is very easy to observe in terms of watching our own minds how much of the time we are living in the world of projection you know we just have all of these projections about other people about ourselves but certainly it's very obvious about other people people we don't even know And very often, these projections and the perceptions we have and then create stories about are not even true. You know, we're just making them up. We're getting lost in these stories in our minds. Years ago, when I first was sitting with our Burmese teacher, Upandita, and he's, he's a very great elder in Burma and from the old school, so he's... He's a very strict and demanding teacher. Uh, and really wonderful. He has an amazing understanding of consciousness in the mind. So we were on a three-month retreat, and it was pretty intense. We were just sleeping four hours a night. You know, we were seeing him every day. We had to report in a very detailed way on our experience. So it was a, it was a high-pressured retreat. I was doing walking meditation. This was in the spring. I was doing walking meditation outside here. And I happened to glance up at one of the upstairs windows and I saw him watching me. So, <laughs> you know, I immediately pretended to be more mindful at least. <laughs> you know, and slowed down and, you know, lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> so I'm going back and forth very slowly. As, and then after a while I glance up again and he's still looking at me. You know, so I'm still in that kind of little paranoid state. So this went on like for 15 or 20 minutes, you know, and so I'm walking, you know, wondering why he's watching me uh, do this walking meditation for so long. But finally, after 15 or 20 minutes, what is this about? So I looked up, I looked more carefully, and it wasn't Upandit at all, it was a lampshade. <laughs> and I had just created this whole big thing. Well, how often do we do that in our lives? You know, where we misinterpret, we make up stories. It's because we're not being mindful of those thoughts or projections 
that are arising in the mind. We're getting lost in them. Now what becomes very obvious is that we're not inviting these thoughts. You know, we don't sit here or walk and invite all of these thoughts and stories to come. They just come. But through meditation practice, we begin to understand a very crucial, a very critical distinction. And you can practice this from the first day, but it takes a huge amount of practice. And that is experiencing very clearly for yourselves the difference in your experience between being lost in a thought and being aware that you're thinking. These are two radically different experiences. The difference between being lost in a thought, being carried away, which we all have many experiences of. You know, it's that experience of you're going along, and then all of a sudden you wake, oh, I've been thinking. All that time we've been lost. That's very different than when you're in awareness and you are aware that thinking is happening. So this distinction is critical. You know, it's something like being in the movie theater and very absorbed in the movie, you know, and really caught up in the emotion of it and the whole story of it. You know that moment when the movie's over and you walk outside and there's this, it's like there's, there's a reality shift. And oh yeah, that was just a movie. Well, what we're doing in meditation is learning how to wake up from the movies of our minds. Because mostly, we spend our time lost in the movies of our minds. Now, why is this distinction so critical? And this distinction uh, illuminates why meditation is not simply a hobby. It's actually essential. Because very often, we're not simply lost in our thoughts and emotions. We're not simply lost in the stories of our minds. Very often, we are acting them out. You know, what's happening in so many places of suffering in the world? When we just look around in the world and all the many places of suffering, what's so often happening is people acting out their thoughts and feelings and stories of greed and of fear and of hatred, those are the forces that create so much suffering. And it's not only out there, it's within us as well. And so if we really are committed to peace in the world, we need to understand in our own minds What are the forces that create suffering? How do we get lost in them? How can we become aware of them? How can we not be so lost? Of course, much of what you do in your work is channeling the intellect 
in channeling thoughts and channeling concepts for the good. So there's obviously a powerful force for good in our thought process. But what's interesting, and this, hopefully by the end of the week, you will have a taste of it. It's almost like an interesting paradox that reveals itself. And that is that the more silent the mind becomes, the more we tap in to powers of creativity. And so our levels of understanding, even about problems or projects that we're working on, understandings can come from a deeper place than simply the thought level. They can often be expressed in thought, but as we get quieter, it's like we tap into a certain place of creativity that's quite extraordinary. Now, my teacher, Munindraji, that first teacher I mentioned, he once gave, (laughs) ironically, a three-hour talk on 21 kinds of silence. (laughs) So there are many, many levels of silence and stillness of mind to experience. And at each of those levels, we tap into a deeper and deeper place of understanding. Of course, the content of one's thoughts can be very seductive. There's a phenomena which we call Vipassana brilliance. And that is that people come on retreat and we just have all these brilliant ideas about so many things. And it gets very interesting, you know, and they're very seductive. It's like finally nobody's bothering us. You know, you have nothing else to do. So it's so easy to get pulled in to the interest of all these thoughts. And I would imagine particularly for a group of scientists here looking at their minds, studying the mind, it would be so tempting to start thinking about it. I would urge restraint. When I was about eight years old, I planted my first and only garden. It was the beginning and end of my gardening career. But I remember very clearly, I spent all this time, you know, preparing the beds and planting the seeds. And then as the carrots, as the the green shoots started to come out of the ground, I got so excited that I would pull them out to see how they were doing. Not a very good way to grow carrots. If, as you're going through this meditative process, you keep pulling up the carrots, oh, this is interesting, let me think about this. Oh, yeah, this, you know, how can I look at this, and what does this mean? Then it actually slows down the deepening process. So a, a mantra that I would suggest for you, this, this will be a very helpful mantra, as you feel yourself pulled into interesting thoughts, even thoughts about the meditation, which, which are their own seduction, 
As you feel yourself being pulled into it, use the mantra, not now. Not now. That's different than a no. You know, you're acknowledging, yeah, this is of interest, and I might at some point really want to think about this, but not now. So it's like you're putting it aside. Come back to the breath or the body or whatever instructions have been given. And in that way, your practice will continue to deepen. At the end of the retreat, there will be plenty of time both to think about it, to speak together about it, uh, but this will be really helpful. Later in the week, talk more about working with emotions. We start with collecting the mind, calming the mind, collecting the attention on the breath, opening to the body, really understanding the thought process in a different way, learning to understand the difference between being lost in a thought and being aware of a thought. We'll begin to also open up to the awareness of emotions and the whole range of emotions and how to hold emotional energy in a mindful meditative way. We'll also begin to look at the nature of consciousness itself. You know, what is it that knows? And this is, this is both a great mystery but also uh, of tremendous interest because it's possible for us to look very directly at the nature of the knowing mind. As we settle into this growing awareness of ourselves on more and more refined levels, we begin to realize something very important. And that is that our practice, this practice of inquiry, this practice of investigation, of growing awareness, is not for ourselves alone. But we can really undertake it with the motivation that our practice be for the benefit of all beings. Now the question might arise, and it might well arise, well, how does sitting here watching my breath, or taking a step, how does that benefit anybody else? It's not immediately obvious. We undertake the practice with this motivation for it to be for the benefit of all, it works in two ways. First, the more deeply we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand each other. Because even though our stories, our particular stories are all different, you know, different backgrounds, different education, different culture, our particular stories are different but the nature of this mind and body is the same in everyone. You know, the nature of pain, the nature of pleasure, of joy, of happiness, of anger, of fear, of peace, of distress. These are universal. And the more we understand all of these aspects in ourselves, the more we can relate to them in each other. And this becomes the seed of compassion. because we can feel more easily compassion for the suffering of others as we have opened to and feel the suffering within ourselves. 
there's a very direct connection. The second way our practice here is of benefit to others is understanding that through the transformation of how we are in the world, it inevitably affects the people around us. Now, if we are more loving, if we are more peaceful, if we are less judgmental, less selfish, then the world is that much more loving, that much more peaceful. The world is that much less judgmental, that much less selfish, because we have transformed ourselves. Now, our whole mind-body is a living, resonating system. And it inevitably impacts and influences everyone around us. There's a great shift in our meditative journey when we go from the understanding that our practice will inevitably help others to making the welfare of all beings the very motivation to practice. Do you see the difference? It's like moving that motivation up front. No matter what it's going to benefit others, it cannot help but benefit others. But it's also possible to put that motivation up front. Yes, I'm doing this. May my life, may my practice be for the welfare, be for the happiness, be for the benefit of all beings. In Buddhism, there's a, there's a term in Pali and Sanskrit. This motivation or aspiration is called bodhijitta. And bodhi means wisdom or enlightened, and jitta means heart. And so this motivation to live and to practice for the benefit of all is the practice, is the manifestation of the awakened heart. I'd like to close with just a few lines from uh, the Dalai Lama, who many of you know is just this incredible being. He said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. Let's sit for just a couple of moments.
Remember the secret teaching. A half breath. Aim, sustain, half breath at a time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.